This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Introduction to Treatment of Pain with Opioid Medication by Dr. Charles Birdie. I'm Dr. Charles Birdie, and I'm Director of the Division of Pain Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. Overview In this lecture, we're going to discuss some general considerations regarding clinical approach to patients with pain, regarding development of pain perception, and trade-offs with the use of analgesic medications. A first point is that the experience of pain is protective. It helps us know which factors in the environment may be helpful or harmful, and it helps us to shape learning and behavior. Treating pain with analgesics always reflects a balance between benefits and potential risks, side effects, or harm from analgesics. Pain transmission in the fetus develops steadily through the second trimester. By full term, human infants show evidence of cortical activation with noxious stimulation, and they show evidence of degrees of maturation of their pain responses, though pain responses continue to mature during infancy. For human neonates and young infants undergoing major surgery, pain evokes hormonal, metabolic, and autonomic stress responses. And these stress responses can produce persistent patterns of vigilance and hyperreactivity. Analgesic medications work at a range of sites in the periphery, in the spinal cord, and in the brain. Opioid analgesics work in part by binding to opioid receptors, which are the targets of endogenous opioid peptides. Opioid receptors are present in the periphery, especially in the gastrointestinal tract, in the spinal cord, in the brainstem, and in forebrain areas that are involved in reward and affective regulation. Examples of opioid analgesics that are commonly used include morphine, oxycodone, hydrocodone, hydromorphone, and methadone. Opioid analgesics have very important roles for treating many types of pain. Some examples include pain after surgery, pain after major injuries, and pain due to vasoocclusive episodes with sickle cell disease. They have crucial roles in treating pain due to advanced cancer, for treating dyspnea in end-of-life care, and for permitting tolerance of mechanical ventilation during critical illness. For each of these indications, opioids generally have a very favorable balance of benefit versus harm. In other lectures in this series, you will hear about some of the mechanisms that make pain become persistent or chronic. Chronic pain is an extremely common problem in adults and is often associated with disability and impaired quality of life. Some common types of chronic pain in adults include mechanical low back pain, neck pain, degenerative arthritis, widespread musculoskeletal pain or fibromyalgia, daily headaches, irritable bowel syndrome, and pain due to nerve injury or nerve degeneration. Over the past 25 years, there has been a dramatic increase in prescribing of opioids on a long-term basis for adults who have chronic pain 
due to a non-life-limiting condition. Despite more than tenfold increase in annual prescribing for these situations in the United States, there is very little evidence that a majority of people with these types of chronic pain due to non-life-limiting conditions receive a good balance of benefit versus harm when they are given opioids on a daily basis. For most of these patients, in clinical trials, they do not show long-term reductions in pain scores, and opioids do not seem to make them more active or more able to return to the workplace. While individual patients do derive long-term benefit from opioids, it is often hard to determine which those patients are and who will benefit or who will not. Several factors regarding opioids should make us cautious in considering long-term opioid prescribing. These include the development of tolerance, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which we'll define subsequently, and some of the neuropsychological and neuroendocrine effects of opioids. Terminology. Several terms are widely used regarding opioid actions. The definitions of these terms are important for understanding benefits and harms of opioids. The term tolerance refers to a diminished effect, such as analgesia, sedation, or respiratory depression, with repeated administration of the drug, or it may mean a requirement for an increased dose in order to get the same effect as was seen originally. The term withdrawal refers to a set of symptoms and physical signs that occur when opioid administration is suddenly stopped or is tapered rapidly in a subject who has opioid tolerance. The term dependence means the capacity to experience withdrawal when opioids are tapered or when an opioid reversal agent is given. The term addiction should be distinguished from either tolerance, withdrawal, or dependence. Addiction properly refers to a condition of compulsive drug seeking. Tolerance, withdrawal, and dependence may coexist with addiction, but they need not. For example, a patient receiving opioids for advanced cancer or during intensive care may become tolerant and dependent, and they may be experience withdrawal if dosing is tapered too rapidly. But these subjects may never develop craving or euphoria or drug seeking or any of the other features that are common for addiction. Along with tolerance and dependence, another feature that may occur with prolonged opioid administration is a resetting of pain responsiveness. The term for this resetting is opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Opioid-induced hyperalgesia refers to a situation in which subjects appear to experience new forms of pain more acutely and with a lower threshold than at baseline. It is not clear what factors make this happen for some people more than others or how common it is, but opioid-induced hyperalgesia should be considered in those situations when patients show hypersensitivity to new forms of pain as well as reduced responsiveness to analgesics. A number of non-opioid pain medications may help to reduce or to reverse opioid-induced hyperalgesia, and they may be considered in these situations. Opioid properties. In general, infants and children with cancer, with sickle cell disease, or with major surgery respond to opioid analgesics with good pain relief and with a good margin of safety. Infants may have an increased susceptibility to hypoventilation due to opioids, and those infants that are naive to opioids 
meaning those who have not been prescribed them previously, should have particular attention to titrated dosing and observation to prevent episodes of hypoventilation. Hospitals caring for children need to develop protocols that take into consideration the particular concerns around opioid prescribing and monitoring for young infants and for infants and children who have diseases that may increase these risks. Many disease states can influence how opioid analgesics act. These influences can be pharmacokinetic, which means they have an influence on how drugs are metabolized and eliminated, or these disease states may influence how opioids act on their targets, meaning pharmacodynamic influences. For example, liver disease can affect the metabolic in inactivation of many opioids, but this effect may be particularly pronounced for opioids such as methadone or fentanyl. Similarly, some opioids are converted in the liver to active products that may have analgesic, sedative, respiratory depressant, or excitatory actions. These active products are then excreted by the kidneys. In these situations, these active products can accumulate in patients with renal insufficiency. For example, morphine's actions are greatly exaggerated in the presence of renal insufficiency due to accumulation of morphine's metabolic products, namely morphine 3-glucuronide and morphine 6-glucuronide. Infants in the first three to six months of life have immature hepatic enzyme systems and reduced glomerular filtration rates. And part of the susceptibility of young infants to opioids is based on immaturity of drug metabolism and elimination. A number of gene variants influence drug metabolism, and these variants can be particularly important for opioids such as codeine. Codeine is an unusual opioid in that it is really a prodrug. This means that it only works by metabolic conversion to morphine as the active drug. Codeine without metabolic conversion is largely inert. Overall, codeine is a weak analgesic, and it's often even more ineffective in patients with some common metabolic patterns. Gene variants that give rise to slow conversion of codeine to morphine result in even less effective analgesia than the more common genotypes. Of even greater concern, there are gene variants that lead to ultra-rapid conversion of codeine to morphine. In people with these ultra-rapid conversion variants, codeine has produced overdoses and deaths in patients sent home. For these reasons, we and the FDA recommend substituting other opioids instead of codeine as a general change in pediatric practice. Pharmacodynamic susceptibility refers to changing responsiveness to opioids at their sites of action rather than changes due to drug metabolism or excretion. For example, children with obstructive sleep apnea or sleep-disordered breathing show greater risk of hypoventilation from morphine and other opioids, and they require smaller doses of morphine and other opioids in order to achieve analgesia. Increasingly, we're recognizing genetic variants that either increase or decrease pharmacodynamic susceptibility to opioids. For example, there are mutations that affect the opioid receptor per se that change susceptibility. It is likely that in the future, screening for these variants and providing clinical decision support around how to adjust dosing will become inexpensive and rapid and hopefully will have good positive and negative predictive value 
and thereby become a routine part of improving our practice. Opioid prescribing. Earlier in the lecture, I discussed the controversy regarding chronic prescribing of opioids to adults who have chronic pain due to non-life-limiting conditions. These controversies and these concerns may be even more acute for children with chronic pain. There are concerns regarding longer-term effects of opioids on cognitive development, endocrine development, and mood regulation. In addition, adolescence is a time of increased susceptibility to many types of addictions, including addiction to opioids. The time course of tolerance to opioids also appears age-dependent. Younger subjects get tolerant more rapidly than older subjects. All of these issues suggest that pediatricians and pediatric subspecialists should be very careful in choosing a course of long-term opioid prescribing for a child who has chronic pain due to a non-life-limiting condition. While chronic opioid prescribing is appropriate for some children, it requires careful patient selection, ongoing monitoring, considering of alternative methods of pain relief, and weighing of risks and benefits. We recommend having a thoughtful informed consent discussion with patients and parents and an informed consent agreement prior to consideration of long-term opioid prescribing not associated with end-of-life conditions. When prescribing opioids for acute pain, it is worth knowing the usual recommended starting doses, but it is important to recognize that many patients require higher or lower doses and that doses need to be adjusted based on clinical response. In this sense, the right dose of morphine is different from the right dose of amoxicillin, for example. Consider three scenarios involving children receiving morphine 0.1 milligram per kilogram intravenously as a first dose of medication following coming to the emergency department for a femur fracture. For a first child, this dose of 0.1 milligrams per kilo might produce good pain relief, a modest reduction in respiratory rate from an initial tachypnea down to a normal range, and minimal sedation. And you might conclude that this is a reasonable and appropriate dose. Consider a second child. For this second child, this dose might produce minimal pain relief, no reduction in their rapid respiratory rate or heart rate, and you would conclude that additional incremental dosing is needed to get pain relief. For a third child, that initial dose of 0.1 milligram per kilo might produce very good pain relief, but slowing of respiration and considerable sedation. For this third child, you would observe closely, wait until over-sedation and relative hypoventilation improve, and you would conclude that subsequent morphine doses should be substantially reduced. For example, you might decide that after the sedation resolves that the next morphine dose would be 50% of the previous dose. Pain assessment. In clinical practice, pain assessment involves a combination of self-report, behavioral assessment, and physiologic assessments. Self-report means asking patients to rate the location, intensity, and quality of pain. In the setting of persistent pain, it is important to ask patients how their pain impacts on daily functioning and on quality of life. In adults, it is very common to rate pain intensity using visual analog or numerical rating scales that ask the patient to rate their pain on a scale of 0 to 10. 
where zero is no pain and 10 is worst possible pain. These scales have reasonable psychometric properties for adults with acute pain and for pain due to cancer, and they have good clinical utility for most typically developing children and adolescents from about the age of eight and older. For children ages four to eight, there are a number of self-report tools based on presenting the child with a series of faces and asking them to rate which one is like how they feel. And there are scales with a slide rule where increasing red color means more intense pain and the child is asked to move the slide until it's a color intensity that simulates their pain. Behavioral assessment involves a range of observations, including facial expression, posture, movement, mental clarity, and level of sedation or arousal. Behavioral assessments are particularly important for neonates, for infants and preverbal children, for patients with developmental and communication difficulties, and during intensive care. Some pain behaviors can be surprising at first glance. For example, neonates experiencing ongoing postoperative pain may close their eyes tightly, furrow their brow, grimace, clench their fists, but not necessarily cry. If you just look at a baby with closed eyes who's not crying, you might mistakenly conclude that that baby is comfortable or sleeping. It's common in this setting to see that after giving additional doses of an opioid such as morphine, that the baby's facial muscles and fists relax and the baby's eyes open and he or she begins to look around more. A commonly used behavioral scale is called the FLAC. This consists of five items, namely facial expression, leg posture, activity, crying, and consolability. For each item, it is scored from zero to two so that the composite score can range from zero to 10. So in this setting, withdrawal from the environment may be the response to pain rather than active movement or crying or flailing. Sometimes behavioral assessments can overrate pain or underrate pain relative to patient self-report. For example, consider a three-year-old having an ear exam. This exam is not painful, but it's scary, and a scale that rates screaming and crying and bodily movements may falsely rate distress that is due to fear and anxiety rather than due to pain. Conversely, in the setting of ongoing persistent pain, some younger children react by withdrawal and inhibition of movement and lying still because it hurts too much to move. Behavioral scales that were developed initially for acute pain and procedural pain may underrate persistent pain in these children. In the setting of persistent pain, it's also important to observe how the patient functions in self-care, in attendance and participation in school or work, and it's important to assess whether there, there appears to be a discrepancy between their reports of pain and how they behave. When there are apparent discrepancies between self-report and behavior, clinicians should consider some possible reasons for these discrepancies, but we should be cautious and open-minded in our interpretation. In general, interpretations regarding psychological factors in persistent pain should be based on positive identification of such factors, not simply on our difficulty in finding a physical explanation for the pain. Physiologic assessments include recording of heart rate, blood pressure, 
respiratory rate, and pupillary diameter. Relative changes in these parameters are often useful for gauging pain relief. For example, in titrating opioid analgesics, a change in respiratory rate and depth and a reduction in heart rate are often useful indicators of analgesic effect. It is highly recommended that healthcare facilities caring for infants and children adopt uniform standards for pain assessment and recording, and that these assessments form one part of a more global approach to rating effectiveness of pain treatment. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.